just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, politics becomes a little less volatile as Boris Johnson achieves the biggest Tory majority since Margaret Thatcher. So what happened in this election and what next? Plus, China has interned over a million Uyghur Muslims in so-called re-education camps. What is going on in Xinjiang? And last... I find out about the joys of mudlarking. First up, what happened in this election? The Tory majority is bigger than most guessed, with Labour having had an abysmal night. Plus, not only was there no Liberal Democrat surge, the biggest Portillo moment of all came when Jo Swinson lost her own seat. Katie Balls talks to Fraser Nelson and writer and broadcaster Steve Richards for post-mortem and to look ahead to five years of a Johnson government. So we've had another, I suppose, surprise in British politics. Ahead of the results, it seemed to be becoming a consensus opinion that the Tories were heading to a very slim majority. That's what some polls were suggesting, and I suppose the general chat in Westminster. Fraser, were you surprised by the size of this Tory victory? They are heading to a majority of 80. I certainly was. Um, the, and I don't know any journalist who wasn't surprised. We always, as journalists, try to pick up straws in the wind, try to find out what Tory party HQ are thinking, what's the internal polling. And the word was that basically looking at between 20 and 40 majority, but with a massive margin of error, accepting that it could be a lot less. So the risk was on the downside. And, you know, we had an office sweepstake, Katie, upstairs, where all of us around the office were thinking of coming in with a, a number. And the highest number was 70, and the lowest number was minus 6. And I thought to myself, either the person in the highest or the lowest sweepstake was going to win. The winner, of course, Katie, was you with 70. Ah. It was, and I am now in possession of a nice bottle of red wine. But enough about me. Um, Steve, did you expect the red wall to crumble in the way it did? Because we're talking about traditional Labour heartlands. There were some that did seem on the edge for a while. We know in 2017 the Tories were really keen to win Bolsover to take down Dennis Skinner, but they failed. But others, which the Tories wanted tonight, didn't even seem to be on, on the, I suppose, the the board. I thought it was possible and I was getting feedback as you must have been if you made that accurate prediction. Quite a few seats were vulnerable and we got people like Jonathan Ashworth unfairly recorded and published saying it's a disaster in these areas. So I did think it was possible but equally it felt in some ways very similar to 2017, the narrowing of the gap during the campaign. So uh, I kind of, at 10 o'clock, thought anything from a hung parliament to quite a big Tory majority was still possible. And um, I was surprised when it was quite the level it was. It's funny, I saw this um, poll of expert political opinions saying what they thought the majority would be. When I saw that, I thought, if you genuinely were a political expert, why would you give a figure? Surely yeah. what we've learned over <laughs> yes, the last few exactly. years is that the whole thing is futile. And if you think you know, then you don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Fraser, let's talk about the political landscape we have found ourselves in this Friday. Both the parties, as James talks about in his cover piece in this magazine, appear to have moved significantly. So how would you describe the coalition that currently makes up the Tory party in terms of voters and seats? It is just an extraordinary coalition. If you look at these are places that have not returned a Tory for, well, Take Burnley, the last time it returned a Tory, 1935. Bassett Law, 1935. Bishop Auckland, 1935. And Lee hasn't returned one since 1918. This is a coalition of voters that Boris Johnson's put together that no modern Conservative leader has been able to do. This is his prized possession. And if you want to know what kind of leader he'll be, he'll be somebody who keeps these guys on board. He's quite proud of this. This is this one-nation Conservatism, and he will do infrastructure spending, regional inequality, anything to keep them happy. Yes, um, one of the things we keep hearing, I suppose, in the past 12 hours is this idea of levelling up. So the fact that if Boris Johnson is going to keep hold of one side of the party, it seems his priority, at least when I was hearing him speak this morning at 7am, after my all-nighter, was ultimately saying to these voters who might have thought that they were lending a vote to the Tory Mm, party, mm. that they shouldn't worry, that their trust is well-placed, and he hoped he could convince them to stay. Now, Steve, one of the things which could... I suppose, play a big factor in whether or not these Labour voters stay with the Tories is how the Labour Party looks by the time of the next election. What is your takeaway of the state of the Labour Party today after suffering very bad losses? I'll I'll tell you that in a second. But Before we get to that, because it is relevant to the prospects for the Labour Party, this is a significant remaking of the political map as Labour in 1997. I remember Labour saying, we've even won Finchley, that seat. Well, they've won Sedgefield Blair's seat. So it's a remaking on that scale and as extraordinary. But that new Labour coalition, that they used to call it the Big Tent, was more fragile at times than it appeared. And I think this one more fragile still, because although Boris Johnson will be determined to focus resources on these newly acquired seats, the resources will sometimes be hard to find. And the kind of default position of a lot of these constituents is disillusionment, maybe justified, not always. And they could become very easily disillusioned with the Conservatives. So that brings me to Labour. On one level, Labour's position is dire much worse than 1992 when it last lost four elections, quite good at losing elections, where John Major had a tiny majority and there were big figures waiting in the wings for Labour. Uh, Now they face a fourth defeat with a big majority for the Conservatives and no really big figures waiting in the wings. But... That coalition that Boris Johnson has formed is, it seems to me, more fragile in some respects than the new Labour coalition that won three elections. So if Labour could find a formidable figure, it's a massive task, I don't think it is as hopeless as it might feel at the moment. Is there anyone that you think perhaps could fill those shoes of you know, being that impressive leader? Not at the moment, because when you think about it, what they've got to do, first of all, is win a leadership contest with that particular electorate. They've then got to put together a set of policies that produce an election-winning coalition and get the media on board as much of it as possible. And it is an epic 
task. So I'm not sure who it is. We know who the runners and riders are going to be. It will be people like Angela Rayner, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornbury, and so on. And while they've all got qualities, none of them yet have that range. So while I think there is a route through, I can't quite see the person who can deliver it. So Fraser, Boris Johnson has a large majority, he can get some things done. But yet, if we look at the Conservative Manifesto, the Institute of Fiscal Studies said it was remarkable for its lack of policy ambitions. So do you think there are going to be some extra things that we haven't read in that booklet, which the Tories might try and do? One thing floated during the election campaign, for example, was this idea of potentially scrapping the TV licence. I think that was um, just a piece of diversionary news tactics. For I mean, the BBC charter was recently renewed; it's there for ten years. I think there will be, of course, lots of things which weren't in the manifesto because, let's face it, that manifesto was there not to cause news. That was its purpose. It was judged by what it didn't say rather than what it did. The IFS is quite right to say there isn't much of ambition there. And in many ways, they decided not to play that game, not to have some complicated policy document with implications that might backfire in a campaign. So I actually think that the more striking things were, um, for example, take Sajid Javid's plan to borrow massively and spend on infrastructure um, that he told me about last week. Now, that hasn't been quantified yet, but that could be the most significant thing they do. If he's serious about borrowing tens of billions of pounds to cover the north in high-vis jackets and cranes, then that could really could be quite significant. So I think he's going to have to get imaginative now. He made a lot of promises without quite working out how he was going to do it there. So, you know, in the words of a George Michael song, all he has to do is take these lies and make them true. Steve, you talked about how hard it was for um, the Tories to potentially keep these voters on side. Do you think mass infrastructure could be what does it? Yeah, but they will have to constantly make the connection between what is happening to their lives and the government policies that have brought this about. Because New Labour did actually pump quite a lot of money into these areas in various forms, but they never spoke about it because they were focusing on the opposite. They were focusing on keeping the Middle England part of their alliance together, and disillusionment began in that period. So uh, they're going to have to shout about it and it has to be real and tangible and quite quick because, as I say, the default position in a lot of those seats is anger and disillusionment, justified or not. Um, Fraser, Steve and I have been talking about how politics has been very unpredictable in recent years. In fact, since 2015, it's been rather topsy-turvy. We now seem to have had a, a surprise ending in many ways in the fact that I think if you look back to the European elections where the Tories came fifth, which is only in May, and you said the Tories were going to win such a big majority, few would have believed you. Mm. But do you think this is now the end of the craziness because we seem to be heading in theory to stable government? We'll be heading to stable government. And it's funny, you know, Katie, I was talking to some of our colleagues earlier on, the ones who've just been political reporters for the last five or six years, having never remembered a period where there was stable government. It used to be the case that the government had a such a thing called a majority, and the government could pretty much pass any laws it wanted, and that was the point of being the government. It's only in this tumultuous decade that we've had David Cameron hemmed in by the Lib Dems, Theresa May at the mercy of various Tory factions, and then the whole government at the mercy of Parliament and rebels recently. It's funny to go back to the status quo ante where 
you had a government and when the go- for example when the government will do the votes on them passing the EU withdrawal bill that won't be dramatic because whenever it wants to have the vote it will win the vote so we're instinctively thinking oh when's it going to be is it going to be on friday next week is it going to be on monday is there going to be drama no there's not going to be drama if they want it passed they'll get it passed so parliamentary wise we'll have stability but when it comes to predicting the trends we're nowhere near yet working out what is driving our for- politics? What are these forces that led to Brexit? What are the forces driving populism? You can see parties st- gr- stumbling around in the dark trying to guess at what they think it is. And Boris Johnson's given his guess. He's guessing it's to do with regional inequality. He's guessing it's to do with not enough investment in Bishop Auckland. He might be wrong. It might be something entirely different. So right now, we are still seeing unpredictable politics because we're seeing people who haven't voted before coming out to vote. We're seeing politicians guess at what these guys want and they get it wrong. And we're still seeing a massive correction. I mean, Donald Trump will probably be the next president of the United States again. He'll probably win again because the Democrats haven't worked out how he got there in the first place. So there is so much puzzling out we've got to do. So yes, we've got a parliamentary majority, but nowhere, nowhere near working out what are the new motive forces roiling our politics right now. So perhaps for those who haven't experience one close up. I wondered, (laughs) Steve, what are the opportunities for an opposition when you are facing a government with a majority? You know, this isn't quite, you know, a landslide, it's 80 Mm. seats, but it's still pretty impenetrable if you think about the things you can get up to, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, virtually none. The opposition has to just get on with it. Suddenly, Parliament will, all the dramas that have been focused on Parliament there will be much less of them because there won't be these knife-edge votes at the end of a debate. Boris Johnson will win virtually every vote he holds in the next two years. And because this election win was his win, his authority will be overwhelming and those MPs will dance to his tune. So it's very difficult for an opposition to make much headway. But the political mood can change very quickly, even in a landslide parliament, if things start to go wrong although there are, and the, there are internal tensions within a government. Remember, when Margaret Thatcher fell, she had just won a landslide three years earlier and no one had anticipated it when she won it in 87. So with Boris Johnson having to navigate the trade deal, which is, I think, going to be thorny, complicated, logistically nightmarish, politically highly charged, facing Scotland and demands for independence, facing all kinds of complexities with his Brexit withdrawal agreement and Northern Ireland. Uh, These are the obvious barriers where things might start to go badly wrong. And obviously, if they do, there are huge opportunities for an opposition. And if an opposition is well ahead in the opinion polls, that too changes the political mood because they are suddenly looked on as an alternative government. But whoever gets this leadership of the Labour Party at first, they'll be excited. They'll think, oh, wow, I'm leader of the opposition. And then they're going to find it a really hard grind. Jeremy Corbyn was lucky. He basically led in hung parliaments. And that's when you have all the power as an opposition leader. Now, finally, Steve, you're a biographer of prime ministers. We have seen Boris Johnson as a prime minister, but it was in quite different circumstances. He had a working majority for the bulk of his time in the region of minus 40 (laughs) after he sent many of his own MPs out of the party. And it often felt as though he didn't have much control of the Commons. So 
What do you think? Or do you have any inkling of what type of prime minister he is going to be now he, I suppose, he has that mandate and that power? Yeah. Everything he has done so far is the opposite of what most modern prime ministers have done. So when he was in this hung parliament as a prime minister, most prime ministers in hung parliaments woo their own side, woo other MPs from other parties. He did the exact opposite. He kicked some of his own side out to make his minority government even more of a minority government. As you observed at 7am this morning, now he's got a big majority. He seems to be tonally at least more emollient. Now normally when a Prime Minister wins a big majority, Thatcher in the 80s off she went. More kind of confrontational and determined but he was like that when he was a leader of a minority government. So my sense is he's going to try and be more emollient and claim that this is a chance to bring the country together again, partly through this odd alliance he's got with his electorate but also by claiming that look, Brexit, we're leaving let's move on. Now, I think that will be tonally the case, but in practice, almost impossible to pull off because of that really complex agenda. But it seems to me that will be his style more than the confrontational aggressive, so let's prorogue Parliament, let's do this, which marked his early phase. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Steve. And if you'd like to hear more about Steve's thoughts on the various prime ministers, do check out his book, The Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to May, available in all good bookshops, including Amazon, the Spectator Amazon voucher would be helpful for buying that. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. Next, what is China doing in its region of Xinjiang? The province is home to the Uyghurs, a Muslim ethnic minority, and reports say that there are over a million of them interned in camps created by the government. So what really happens in these camps, and what does China want to achieve? Journalist Harold Mas went undercover to Xinjiang last year and writes about what he found out in this week's issue. He joins me down the line now, together with Professor Rachel Harris, an Uyghur expert at SOAS. Harold, you spoke to a number of Uyghurs on your trip. Can you tell us what they told you? Yeah, I did um, more than a dozen interviews with families of uh, people who've been who are who've been incarnated in the camps, and although with former inmates of the camps and. Um, the uh, restrictions there and the controls of the government are so strict, though these um, interviews had to be done undercover, um, uh, most of them outside of Xinjiang and outside of China. And um, there are lots and lots of stories of people who've had people in camps. And what is it that gets someone arrested into one of these camps? From the people I spoke to, there are 
is anything what people do and just normal behavior could lead to arrests. And um, some of the people I spoke to, their family members have been arrested or sent to camps just because they had um, WhatsApp um, and other um, foreign messenger services on their phones. Some of these people have been um, traveling abroad and coming back. And so it's normal you have these apps on your phones. And this was already the reason to be sent to camp. Others have been sent just for having filled up too much petrol too often, which was suspicious and somehow. And um, some of them have been accused of just because they've been praying and being Muslim, that they have been basically, um, that was a reason why they've been sent to camps. So all kinds of reasons. And in some way it seems people just, the authorities just looked for any reason just to have people sending people to camps just as they needed to fill up quotas or something. Rachel, you've um, you've studied Xinjiang and the Uyghur people for many, many years. You go there quite often. Is this something that you've seen as well and do contacts that you keep in touch with for research and other purposes, is this what they're reflecting as well? Oh yes, this is completely familiar to me. It's um, the kind of stories that we're hearing I hear from Harold are stories that I've heard many times from friends and colleagues who've been traveling in the region and also from uh, just my personal experience. So I first started traveling to that region over 20 years ago and I've seen the situation deteriorating and becoming increasingly repressive year on year. But I mean, it is really over that last two years that we see this extraordinary kind of ramping up of the pressure. And I personally have seen the the arrest and detention of numerous colleagues and friends. My main work is about music in this region. And I, I can count, you know, large numbers of prominent musicians and also intellectuals, academics, who are personal friends who have been detained. And of course, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but of course, you know, these are not people who are in any way radical Muslims. These were people who were writing about the culture that they cared about. These are people who were singing in the Uyghur language and they were detained alongside, you know, the possibly one and a half million Uyghurs and Kazakhs and other Turkic Muslims we know have gone into these camps. I think, I think to just to add one thing, I think this is a very important point to see how quickly China moved here, the government moved here. Um, I covered Xinjiang for many years as well and, and traveled there. And um, it, 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 it was always an area where, where the government had a look at it. But um, it was possible, for, for example, as a journalist a few years ago, to meet people more or less privately and give, get their opinions. And this is absolutely impossible right now. And it's also that different minorities are getting now under pressure and, and sent to the camps. It used to be that the government was always extremely or very quite strict against Uyghurs, but now there are other minorities like uh, Kazakh people, for example, which are over one million uh, people there in this region, and they, they get these harsh treatments as well. Rachel, can I just pick you up on something you mentioned earlier about the people who you know who've gone in there who have been academics and, you know, white collar. You know, one of the things that China says about these camps is that it's for vocational training to get them into better jobs in society. But this doesn't sound like the sort of people who need vocational training. No, exactly. So I, I think, you know, the the 
pure kind of propaganda value of that notion of vocational training is it's really given the lie by the the kinds of people we know have gone in so my own close colleague and friend and collaborator Rahila Dawut was actually detained two years ago to this day Um, she was on her way back from a conference in Beijing and she disappeared we've had no contact with her since then we can only assume that she has been detained because of her interest in Uyghur culture. The idea of um, this highly educated, this professor of Xinjiang University requiring some kind of vocational training is clearly absurd. And the idea that she is some kind of dangerous religious extremist is even more ridiculous. Harold, let's just touch on that religious extremist point there. China obviously uses, says that, you know, first of all, is that it's vocational training, and secondly, that this is a way to ca- tackle terrorism. The region Xinjiang has had a history of separatism and often violent terrorist attacks. For example, most notably in 2014, the Kuemin train station attack, which left 31 civilians dead with more than 140 injured. That, and that's not the only one. So the Chinese government says that this is why these camps exist. Do you buy that narrative? First about this um, this explanation by the government about vocational training centers, um, I think it's important to to understand that uh, for a long time the Chinese government and the local government officially totally denied the existence of these camps. But this was at a time when there have been already hundreds of thousands of people have been in the camps. There have been satellite pictures and there have been some some really brave work of, of, of individuals and human rights activists to first to uncover these. But still the government said, oh, they're there, this is uh, it's a lie, they are not existing. Only when it became too obvious mainly through um, um, reports from, from people who managed to escape from the camps or who managed to escape from Xinjiang, then the Beijing government suddenly shifted and said, oh, these are vocational trainings. And this is just a line of defense and has nothing to do with, reality, with, with the reality. If you talk to any person who has relatives in these camps, you always hear stories. They are not voluntary there. They are forced. It's a harsh regime. And it's it's like a industrial-sized system, basically, to brainwash the people. These people in the camps, they have to uh, praise the government. They have to renounce that they are any kind of, of religious activities. It's a prison-like situation, how they get dressed, how they get um, treated. Um, that has nothing to do with vocational trainings. About the point that China is defending these systems um, as, a, as a measure against terrorism. It is right, there have been incidents of violence and of attacks in Xinjiang, similar as it has been in Tibet, for example. But nobody denies, of course, China the right to, to act against and protect its citizens. But there's, um, it doesn't make sense in this scale that you have like up to one million people in the camps um, for a few incidents which has happened. And what is interesting, the people I spoke to, many of them have been Communist Party members. They've been like basically model citizens in a sense. They've been like gov- had government jobs. They've been teachers. And randomly they've been picked um, and, and sent to the camps. So that has nothing to do with um, protection against terrorism. This is just a system to scare the people and to, to frighten the people. Yeah, really what we're seeing here, it seems to me, is a very concerted attempt to assimilate 
these Turkic Muslims, the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs, into the wider Chinese society. Can you tell us a bit more about the Uyghurs in China? You know, for listeners who don't know about the ethnic makeup of China, most people probably be thinking most people are Han Chinese, but who are the Uyghurs and what is the history of their relationship with the state? Right. So so the, the Uyghurs are quite different from the mainstream Chinese society. They speak a Turkic language. You know, it's closer to the language spoken in Turkey than it is to, to Chinese. They are really a Central Asian people. You know, they're very closely related to the other Central Asians, the Uzbeks in particular, the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz. So culturally, they really are quite different from mainstream Chinese society. And, you know, there are these kind of debates about history. China will write in all its textbooks that um, Xinjiang has been an integral part of China for for 2,000 years or more. But in fact, China's reach into this region, which is well outside of the the Great Wall of it's China, it's in the west of China, yeah, it's more towards Central Asia. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's out. It's beyond the the pass. It's outside of the Great Wall, and it is in the northwest of today's People's Republic of China. But really, culturally, it is part of Central Asia, and the policies laid down in the early days of the People's Republic of China, of course, were very positive, at least in theory, about the way that um, these ethnic minority cultures should be allowed to flourish, the way that language should be supported, that um, transmission of the culture should be supported. What we are seeing now, I think, is really a major reversal of those long-standing policies under the People's Republic and a policy instead to change to a kind of melting pot system. So to to really crack down on the use of Uyghur language, to promote the use of Chinese. We can see this in all sorts of ways. We can see the way that they've been building what they call um, harmony villages, where they're encouraging Han Chinese to come and settle in villages alongside Uyghurs. There's been a very big push to encourage intermarriage. And of course, this is something that Uyghurs in the diaspora have got very upset about, you know, because a lot, a lot of the people in the camps are men, Uyghur men, and so a lot of Uyghur women are left outside the camps. And now there seems to be this push to to bring in uh, new husbands, Han Chinese husbands for the Uyghur women. Harold, finally, you know, you're quite damning in your piece at the end saying that this is all happening in plain sight of the West. What what can the West do about this and or what should it do? So... Actually, I think uh, what is important that for a long time, the Chinese government actually got away with these camps basically becoming too public, becoming too much an issue. Only lately, let's, with, with documents leaked by the New York Times and by other international media, um, it became more of a bigger issue and a wider issue. So um, I think it's important that, that um, the, the, the world and the West shows China that they are not getting away with this kind of, 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 of human rights abuse in such a scale. And in some way, you could see that uh, this kind of public attention and, and, and growing international pressure is changing in some ways that at least the government, at least some signals show that they um, say that they scaling it down now they officially they say these people have now graduated um, and it's just to see what has been what what will come out of this but um, I think this is the only way Harold and Rachel thank you very much 
Hello, I'm Livia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk And last, with thousands of years of history, what are the treasures that the Thames holds? Mudlarker Lara Maiklem has found anything and everything, from Roman coins to Tudor shoes on the banks of the river, and, more recently, even a human skull. She writes about the joys of mudlarking in this week's issue, and joins me now. So Lara, to start with, can you tell us about mudlarking? What is it? Yes, I mean, really, it's my hobby. It's, I'm not a professional archaeologist or a historian or anything like this. It, it was just a place for me to get away from everyday London life. And I go down onto the banks of the River Thames when the tide's low. And I look for uh, lost and discarded objects that could really go back 2000 years plus. So you really never know what you're going to find. Every tide leaves a different treasure, something different to collect. And what are some of these treasures that you do find? You can find anything. I mean, I've found lots of Roman coins, Roman hairpins, medieval pilgrim badges. I've got a Tudor needle case. I've got prehistoric work flints going right through to Victorian bottles. I've got part of a work whalebone. You find the most unusual and weird objects. (laughs) You never know what you're going to find next. (laughs) And you say that actually the Thames is a river of lost souls because it's not just objects that you find down there, is it? It's not, no. If anyone going down onto the foreshore, one of the things that they'll notice straight away, apart from the oyster shells and the clay pipe stems, are piles and piles of bones. And most of these bones are from domestic waste. So they're they're from animals that were butchered for for ancient Londoners to eat. So it's it's just the remains of lots and lots of dinners. In amongst all these animal bones of the pigs and the sheep and the cattle are actually human bones. You know, it sort of stands to reason 2,000 years of intense habitation around the banks of the Thames. People have fallen in, there have been battles, and, and there's been a reasonable number of suicides as well. So there are human remains in the river, which is why I do call it a bit of a, lo- a river of lost souls, yes. And recently you found a human skull that's got quite a lot of archaeological value. Can you tell us about that? I did. I was with a friend. We were out uh, mudlucking because you can mudluck on the tidal Thames. It has to be tidal. And people often think of the Thames as being just that little bit that wiggles through central London. But it actually goes right out to the estuary from Teddington right out to the estuary. And we were out in the estuary mudlucking out there where it's, it's... it's it's very wide expanse, lots and lots of muds and mud flats. And we found some human bones, including a skull. And we hadn't really been to this part of the foreshore before and we didn't really know how high the water was going to come up. We knew that we had to report them. You have to report human remains. They looked very old. They were covering, covered in barnacles. So we, we dug a shallow grave or hole and we put the bits that we could find. It, it turned out we found that the 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 bottom half of one arm, one femur and a skull. And we, we we buried them and marked it, took a GPS setting and the police went out the next day and recovered the bones. And they took them to the coroner and they've since been up to a lab in Scotland and been tested. And they're anywhere between 200 and 300 years old. So how is it that some these things with so much history is able to be still found in terms today? I mean, how long do they stay in the river for? What I don't understand is a sort of time travel aspect of it all. 
<laughs> well, I mean, objects have been have been dumped. They've been lost and dropped, and they've also been built into the foreshore of the river in central London. The foreshore was a, a working environment, so they took lots of domestic waste and builders' rubble, and they dumped it on the foreshore and built it up, packed it down into this very flat surface so that the barges could rest on it at low tide. And since the 1960s and 70s, the ships and barges have stopped coming to London and the foreshore has been very neglected and it's it's being eroded. So the river's reclaiming its foreshore, it's turning it back into the natural V-shape that it's supposed to be and it's releasing all of these objects that are contained in the foreshore and contained in the mud. And the mud is anaerobic, which means that if something has been contained in this mud, it's perfectly preserved. So so you can find perfectly preserved objects made of wood or leather. I've got a perfect Tudor shoe that's as 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 beautiful as the day it was it dropped in. So you know it's it's a combination of objects that have been lost and dropped and and purposefully built into the foreshore that are now eroding out. And of course it's finite; it will run run out at some point. But if these objects aren't collected from the surface, then they will eventually just wash away or or, or erode down with with wave action and water action and. and erode away so that they're there to be collected presumably all not everything that you find is as charming as a Tudor shoe I mean are there is there lots of modern stuff that really gives you an idea of the history of London over the past past half couple of hundred years uh, there is I mean every generation has left its legacy in the river and unfortunately our our legacy isn't as isn't as nice as 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 previous generations our ancestors their rubbish was made of wood and leather and fabric and pottery and glass and all of these objects are are organic and they'll gradually break down and essentially return to where they came from what we're believing behind is plastic and when you get down really close up to the foreshore you see these little tiny pieces of plastic and it looks really clean uh, through central London and the foreshore is relatively clean considering it's one of the uh, it runs through one of the largest cities in the world but if in Hammersmith there are actual islands made of wet wipes. So our rubbish is changing the geography of the river in a way that our ancestors' rubbish never did. And these wet wipes are coming in in the sewage that's dumped into the river still, because when it rains very heavily, they have to let the sewage go into the river, otherwise it would bubble up into everyone's houses and streets. And so it's it's these storm drains uh, let this raw sewage into the water, and it contains wet wipes. And wet wipes don't just disappear. They're creating these hideous rafts and islands further out towards the estuary it's all the floating rubbish it's the it's the plastic bottles and and all of that horrible stuff and there's banks of it and so yes we are leaving quite a a hideous legacy actually Mm, and just i mean just to end on a bit more of a positive note if listeners do want to go mudlarking where should they start how can they start I run a social media site called London Mudlark on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And you can find lots of information there. You get your license from the Port of London Authority. If you go online and, and Google foreshore license and Port of London Authority, it'll come up. But really, the best place to go is London Mudlark and ask any questions you've got there. And there's lots of people there that can answer you. One last question, which was, do you get to keep all the stuff that you find? except for the human remains, presumably? That's a really important question, actually, because obviously some of the stuff that's washing up is, is historically really important. And under the terms of your licence, you have to report it. Anything historically important, you report to a fines liaison officer and they work for something called the Portable Antiquities Scheme. And they are aiming to record all the objects that are being found in fields and rivers and beaches all over the country. They've recorded over a million objects now. And it's a really important resource for uh, our lost history history. 
Anything that counts as treasure, made of gold or silver and over 300 years old, that's put very, very simply, has to, by law, be reported. So yes, you do have to report your fines. And it's really important to do that because if you're not reporting them, they're not a discovery. Something that's not reported isn't a discovery if you're not sharing it with other people. Laura Micklin, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the issue to read all the pieces discussed in the episode, as well as more from Andrew Sullivan, Debbie Hayton and Freddie Gray. And you can pick up 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 